Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to your people. Lord Jesus, thank you that we are a church that understands. So many churches are built on personalities of fallen men and women. But Lord God, the only thing that matters is what you do in our lives. And we know you love your people. You are working in your people. And that's why we have faith and confidence this morning that you will speak to us through your word. You are growing us, shaping us, molding us. We get to live in these exciting times in which we live to see you make your name known in this world. We get to be part of that. We are excited. Jesus, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for encouraging us through relationships that we have built together. But the most important thing, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and for growing us and discipling us and maturing us in the faith that we need and is necessary for us to be your sons and daughters in 2022. Jesus, do your work. It is in your name. And every Christian said... Amen. Let's actually go back in chapter 6 to verse 12. Because last week was a heavy week. Because human life is hard and Moses is right in the middle. And before we get into this genealogy, the way this ends here for Moses is repeated after this genealogy. God is making a point in showing us the, the depression, the, the exhaustion. He's out of Moses and the people are uh, out of breath. It's where they are. But then we pick up in this genealogy. I told you, let's read verse 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God tells Pharaoh, go to, uh, God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Everything gets worse. Moses forgets that God had already warned him in chapter 4. That's the way it was going to happen. He's just in the middle of everything being worse. The people, God, Pharaoh comes down hard on God's people at Moses' request that the Lord commanded him to go and to give. And so then Moses, defeated, rejected by Pharaoh, comes back and God says, look, I've been working, I am working, and seven promises, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will continue to work. I will deliver. I will bring out a bondage. I will make them my people. I will be their God. All these promises. You would think Moses would be encouraged by, by what God is saying. And he goes and he gives this same sermon that God has just given him to God's people. And they reject. Pharaoh rejects him. God speaks again. Israel rejects him. Moses is full of rejection. And now God is saying, go back to Pharaoh now. And Moses just doesn't want, what good is it going to do? His heart has become dark and cynical. He knows 
God exists. He saw uh, the theophany at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord. He knows what, what this superior being must be saying is true. He just doesn't want to be part of it anymore. I, there's no sign in my mouth that's going to make Pharaoh, I know you're telling me to go, but every time I do what you say, stuff gets worse. He's in a bad place. Then we get to this genealogy. Now let's read verse 14. Because this is here for a reason. These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmine. These are the clans of Reuben. We start with, in this genealogy, the firstborn son of Jacob. As genealogies should begin. Uh, this is the way they did genealogical work in the ancient world. We're trying to get to Levi here. To prove the lineage of Moses and Aaron. That's the purpose of this. But we got to start with the firstborn son. And then we move to the secondborn son. Look at verse 15. The sons of Simeon. He's the secondborn son to Jacob. And only then do we get to verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generation. And then the sons of Levi are unpacked and talked about. And down in verse 20 we see Amran, the father of Moses and Aaron, takes his father's sister. He marries his aunt, which... There's no rules yet about how that's a no-no. That doesn't come to Leviticus. Uh, God's going to end that. But in the ancient world, less people around, families often intermingle. DNA strands weren't as corrupt as they are now thousands of years later. So God allowed that kind of behavior to occur for a season and a time before he uh, made laws against that kind of behavior. But it's just kind of weird. Moses' uh, father's married to his aunt. Blech. Not a good idea. But here's what I want to point out. And you need to just write down in your margins, Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. Uh, put that somewhere near Reuben, who sins greatly against his father. And then put down Genesis chapter 49. Because it is in these chapters. Moses is or, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob is dying in Genesis chapter 49. And he's praying over and, whether he knows it or not, is prophetically saying some things to his 12 sons that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And to Reuben he says this, and this is in my words, but he says, Reuben, I can't forgive you for what you did back in chapter 35, verse 22. And even though you're the firstborn, you're not going to have any preeminence in the house of Israel. Even though all should, by custom and by the way things worked in the ancient world, you should get everything as the firstborn, but you're going to get none of it. Did you know that in the rest of the Old Testament, no great leader, no military leader or political leader, no prophet, no judge comes from the line of Reuben, even though he's the firstborn and should be in control of everything, there's no preeminence that occurs 
in his family. Moses even prays later on uh, that the, the house of Reuben will be preserved because it looks like at one point it's just going to die out. Reuben's barely mentioned again throughout the entire Old Testament because of the sins that occur in Genesis chapter 35, 22. Uh, the big idea here is just be, you know, so many times we think if we get the right degree, if we come from the right place, if we just had a better pedigree, if we came from the right family, then God could really do something with me. And that's not the case at all. Sometimes those who come from the right place are, are, can be forgotten in the economy of God. How do we know this? Let's look further at, at uh, Simeon and Levi. Do you know what Genesis chapter 49 says about Simeon and Levi? It says they were violent men. They were angry men who in their anger killed others. These guys were hot and heavy, lost their temper, murdered needlessly just because of their own anger and personal violence. Why is this important? Because it is God who chooses the tribe of Levi, this violent, angry man, to bring about a priesthood who stands uh, as a mediator between God and all of the nation of Israel. Big idea. For those of you in this room, this entire thing is later on. God's going to make the, the Levite tribe. The sons of Levi, starting with Moses and Aaron, a priesthood for all of the nation of Israel. That's why God put this here. To, to inform when the law does come through Moses why this is important. But here's the idea for you. And you've heard me say this before, but you just need to see it. It's all throughout Scripture. I mean, there is a prostitute mentioned in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew. It does not matter where you come from. I talk to so many people who tell me, well, Brent, you just don't understand my family. We are this way. My dad is this way. My mom is this way. So this is just my lot in life. And dad was a drunk, so I'm going to be a drunk. And, and mom was a whatever, so I'm going to be a whatever. And, and we think we have to be like those who came before, but that is not true in the economy of God. God can do anything, and God loves to come. Not to the greatest of these, but he loves to come to the least of these and use them in his will and in his purposes on planet Earth. Every, gene in the, every genealogy in the Bible proves that gospel truth. It doesn't matter where you come from. God raises up sons and daughters and uses them to accomplish his purposes in this world. You may come from a long line of weak links in your family pedigree and in your family chain. But praise God, you can be perhaps the first in your family to have a godly family of your own, to train your children up in the ways of the Lord, to be remembered by your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren as a godly man, a godly woman who loved the Lord and taught the Word and, and focused on the gospel of Christ Jesus. You can be the first one in your family to be used powerfully by God to change the lives of all those that come after you. 
as God used Moses and Aaron, sons coming from a father down the line, violent and angry and a murderer. And Moses is going to lead God's people out of slavery, delivering them into the inheritance that God provides. It doesn't matter where you come from. All that matters is you know creator God who formed you in your mother's womb and you trust him and you follow him above all else. That's why the genealogy here. Verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, and here's that phrase we saw for the first time in chapter 6 verse 2. This phrase, this is the fifth time we see it in chapter 6. We're going to see it in chapter 6. We're going to see it ten more times as we move through Exodus. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I don't know him. Not going to listen to him. When God begins to reveal himself, I am the Lord. That, that, that personal holy name given at the burning bush to Moses. He now says, I am the Lord. And you're going to see, and Pharaoh's going to see, and the Egyptians are going to see. I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am, uns- I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Again, we just see Moses in this dark place. His heart has been dark and he's become cynical. I've quoted C.S. Lewis to you before. One of my favorite quotes. Because we live in an age of this feeling right here. Yeah, I believe in God. I know God's word is, is true. I just don't feel it. I just don't want it right now. I just don't. We think we see through. People love to see cracks and holes and talk them out. Talk themselves out of faith. Talk themselves out of what God says. What theologically they know to be true. I just don't feel it. That's the age and day in which we live. I hear so many people, oh, yeah, that's just the Bible. And, and who knows? And it's an old book. And maybe, maybe it's different. Maybe it, it's the age in which we live. Moses is there. One, one thing I hope more than anything else is as we see God pound and hammer Moses on the anvil of his word. We're going to see Moses change. And it's the same change that God wants to to hammer us into. God does not want a cynical people who kind of know but don't feel. No. He wants a people who are glad. We're going to see Moses throughout the end. He is glad to listen to God. He is glad to obey God. God proves himself to Moses over and over and over in the midst of all the hardships, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a a cynical spirit. God proves himself over and over to where by the end of this book, Moses is just like, yeah, Moses isn't even uh, uh, upset. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. God, you're good. You're good. I've learned to trust you. I've learned that you work all things out for good. Your plans are better than my plans. I've learned. We're going to learn as we walk through this. Because we all want a different storyline for ourselves, don't we? 
God teaches us over and over and over that his storyline is better than any other storyline that we could fabricate for ourselves. If we could make our own story, it would all be the same. We'd live in a castle out on 50 acres with a big wall and nobody could get to us. And we have the choicest meats, and we've got our own farms, and we don't need nobody. Right? We'd all have the same storyline. We'd all be our little kings of our little kingdoms. But it is in the hardship of life God proves to us that his story is better than the story we would create for ourselves. And when that, that's when cynicism begins to die. There's a great book called A Praying Life by a guy named Paul Miller. I think uh, it was Allie Brannon who gave it to my wife. And, and I had never heard of Paul Miller, but J.I. Packer endorsed the book. So I was like, all right, well, this guy's probably awesome. And you, you don't know J.I. Packer. You need to read some J.I. Packer. Uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You, you need to read it. But Paul Miller writes this book, and I picked it up just wondering what it is. It's got two huge chapters on the cynical spirit and how through the gospel of Christ... You can crush it. If you, if you wrestle with cynicism, that's C.S. Lewis quote that I never said from a long time ago. Because we think we see through things. But if you see through, the only reason to see through something is to see what's on the other side of it. But we've become so cynical in our country that we see through everything. And in seeing through everything, we really see nothing at all. This is where we can get if our eyes are not fixed where they need to be fixed and they're, instead we're, we're just seeing this, what surrounds us in this evil world led by evil men. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus himself, always our answer. But in this book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, he gives five cures for a cynical spirit. I'm just going to give you the first one right now because we're going to see this change in Moses and we need to see this change in ourselves. Jesus, and now Matthew chapter 10, just for some context, is a chapter about hardship and suffering in life. And why there, how there's purpose for it. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. We should expect bloodshed. We should expect hardship. Blood on the ground. We are sheep in a world of wolves. God does what? This is, you've heard this verse before. Be wise as serpent, gentle as doves, or as innocent as doves. But that verse is given in the context of, context of suffering and of hardships that we face as sheep in a world full of wolves. Jesus gives this advice to his people. Be wise. Here's what God doesn't want. God doesn't want you to shut your brain off and ignore the hardships around you. God doesn't want a naive people. Have you ever met that person who just doesn't live in the real world? You know what? Right? Usually they're Pentecostal. I come from that background so I can make fun. Right, and they just, right, they're walking around and they're, they're, their arm is hanging by one tendon, their leg is broken, they're bleeding everywhere, and you're like, hey, how's it going? Oh, everything's great. God does not want us to lie to ourselves. 
The worst thing you can do if someone is just suffering, if someone is, is seriously in just a season of darkness and depression, one of the worst things you can do, one of the worst things you can say is, chin up, buddy. See the glass is half full, not half empty. Because it ignores the realities that are real in their life at that moment. Those realities are important. Transitional growing moments that God has us in for purpose. He doesn't want a naive people. He wants a people who are wise. A people who, who see what is and understand why it is. One of the worst things that ever happened to Christianity in our, well, I say one of the worst things in my lifetime that I've seen is the growth of the self-help movement. You know, there was a guy, and Amway used to be a big thing in the churches. How many of you have sold Amway? Don't lie. Okay, we finally grew out of that stage. That's good. There's going to be some diamond distributor in here. Don't you say anything about Amway. But there was a guy named Norman Vincent Peale way back in the 70s who wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And he influenced a lot of Christians, like Zig Ziglar, who influenced John Maxwell. And all of a sudden, bookstores uh, had all this self-help, self-motivational stuff. And now listen, now all of it is bad. I got into a self-help kick back in 2000 and 2001. I had created a personal growth plan, and, and one of my personal goals was to read a book every week. And I did that for 10 years. Between 2001 and 2000, I read over oh, 1,000 books. And about a third of them were self-help books, leadership books, parenting books, family books, self-help and I learned there's a lot of nuggets in there that are helpful. But here's what I've learned in, in all that experience. I've learned I don't need self-help near as much as I need God help. Here's what I know about me. If I get on a mission and I get driven and I write out a plan, I can change myself temporarily. I'll write it out. I'm going to be a better husband and I'm going to kiss my wife on the cheek every time I see her and tell her how thankful I am for her and I'm going to spend intentional time with each one of my kids every day and I'm going to get up earlier and I'm going to do... Right? I can make those lists and I can white knuckle it. And isn't it... It's like going on a diet. Isn't it so exciting the first day? And the second day and you got all the plans out on we're going to do this and you got $400 worth of vegetables in your fridge... And day one, you're like, this is awesome. I feel better already. <laughs> day two, you're like, man, I really miss burgers. <laughs> day three, you're like, ah, forget it. And $300 worth of those vegetables just spoil and rot. We can change ourselves through motivational techniques and self-help for a day, for a week, sometimes even for a few months. But eventually, we can never change ourselves the way that God can change us. That's why we don't need to be naive about the situations we find ourselves. We are wise as servants, as gentle, as, as innocent, as doves, like Christ. This is what Moses is going to learn. This is what we have to learn. Look, look where Jesus centers us. Oh, wait, we'll go to verse 17. 10, 17. 
beware of men. I just love that, how that verse starts. Because men are terrible. Men have agendas. Men manipulate. Men do things for their own good. And they will kill you if it benefits them. I've seen it. I've seen it in churches all my life. Just impure motivations to benefit someone and not do the good work of the gospel in the hearts of people who truly need it. We're sheep. We've got to be wise and gentle like Jesus. Where does Jesus ground this? You hear Jesus talk about sparrows all the time. He does it in Matthew chapter 6. He does it at the end of this chapter about suffering and hardship as well. Look at uh, verse 29. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not to, here's where Jesus grounds us. What does it mean to be, we know wise, we're not, we're not to be naive, we're to see things for as they are. We're also to be innocent as doves. What does it mean? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Look how cheap and inexpensive the sparrows are. Yeah, God knows them. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Listen, God knows you. Created you. And as we're going to see, loves you. You have value. You are sons and daughters of God through Christ Jesus. All spiritual blessings belong to you. Look at, uh, fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. You know the lesson that Moses learned, the lesson that Jesus is teaching here? It's a lesson of focus. Where does God help come from? It comes from our eyes on Christ Jesus. And the Old Testament is going to come from Moses keeping his face towards God and not on Pharaoh and not on the Egyptians and not on the circumstances around him. It's always easier to follow and obey when our eyes are upon him. And why should our eyes be upon him even in the midst of darkness and a cynical spirit and hardship? Because he loves us and his plan is best. And we only know that as we focus on him and follow even when we don't want to. This is, you, you've heard me say this before. If I'm trying to get to the end, the back room, if I'm trying to get to that TV on the back wall, if my feet are straight and my eyes are focused, I start walking, I'm going to get there. But what happens if I turn my feet not even a half an inch. And I start walking. I'm going to be so far off the mark. You know where cynicism in our hearts come from? When you start seeing through church and seeing through Bible study and seeing through and oh, it's not really worth it and it's not really health. You know where all that comes from? Loss of focus. Hardships are the place where God trains us to keep our eyes on him because he is our only hope. And it's in following him through the pain, building the endurance, building the character from Romans chapter 5 that those sufferings produce, getting closer to him that we realize his plan was always better than ours to begin with. Let's move into chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. 
God once again affirms my will is solid. This is what you're going to do. And he says, I'm going to make you, you're going to become like a God to Pharaoh. Now, are we Mormons? No. A regular Mormon won't tell you, but if you talk to their elders, they actually believe that uh, we can become Christ is kind of a demigod. Christ is not, they don't believe in the Christ we believe in. They believe in a lesser Christ, a created Christ, a half-brother of Satan who, who becomes a demigod through his obedience to God and that we can all be like that too and we're actually going to rule over kingdoms the way that Jesus rules over this world out in space uh, after this life. It's crazy and not sound doctrine. God doesn't tell Moses he's going to become God he says, you're going to become like God to Pharaoh. What does that mean? We know Moses has already been before Pharaoh once. And he was a man of uncertainty. There was nothing in his speech, nothing in the words of God that he said that, that moved Pharaoh at all. Pharaoh's God. Pharaoh believes he's God. The people of Egypt believe he's God and worship him as God and pay homage to him as God. So Pharaoh is standing tall in these meetings with Moses, and Moses is coming in like a little kid with a request, no power behind him to change anything, to move Pharaoh. But over these next interactions, he's going to come before Pharaoh again. He's going to come before Pharaoh ten more times starting next week. And by the end... Of all these interactions, it's Pharaoh who's going to be the one who is reduced to a little kid with no power. And Moses is going to be the one whose every word comes to pass through the mighty hand of God. It is Pharaoh who's going to learn he's not God, but that Yahweh, I am the Lord. He's going to learn through Moses and Aaron's obedience to God. But I will harden, verse 3. And again, I love how God tells Moses. Moses shouldn't have been so blue. Just like Christians, when you suffer hardships, it shouldn't surprise you. God tells us beforehand these things are going to occur. These light, momentary afflictions, they're, they're hard, but they're momentary. Eternity of, of peace. Is on the way. He tells Pharaoh exactly what's going to happen before. He tells Moses exactly what's going to happen before. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So let's talk about this. Moses, I need you to go. Take Aaron. I promise you by the end of this thing, you're going to be like God to fair. He's going to come down and I'm going to raise you up in my name. But he's not going to listen to you this first time. He's not going to listen to you ten more times. Because I'm going to harden his heart. Now, if you're new to Bible study, you might be thinking, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? This is an important lesson for us in the difference between the, the righteous and the unrighteous, the believer and the unbeliever. The, the one made holy in Christ through the gospel and the one who stays in their sin. Wicked men, wicked hearts, 
God doesn't just reach in and flip a switch in Pharaoh to make him reject. It's Pharaoh's own wickedness that rejects. How does God harden? By sending Moses time after time after time after time, telling Pharaoh exactly what's going to happen next, what God is doing because he's long patient. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He gives Pharaoh opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to relent, to take himself off the throne, to say, you're right, I'm not God. You're God. Let's do things your way. But what do the wicked do? They reject God's outward call of grace and mercy. God hardens through offering salvation. God hardens through time and time and time again coming and giving Pharaoh a chance. But as many times as it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart at every opportunity to repent. Pharaoh says, no, my way is more important than your way. It's the same reaction that we hear today from the ungodly. It's my life. It's my way. It's my body. I do what I want, regardless who I hurt, regardless what happens to somebody else. This is about me. God hardens by giving opportunity after opportunity. And we harden ourselves through our own sin nature, saying no, no, no to God, and yes to ourselves. It happened in Egypt. It happens today still. It's why the outward call of the gospel is not heard by so many. Verse 5. Now look at this. The Egyptians shall know. Here's our sixth time we've seen it since chapter 6-2. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Here's one thing you need to understand. And we've talked about this before, but it's so important. It looks like evil men rule. It looks like uh, evil people are on thrones. It looks like everybody's getting away with everything. But nobody's getting away with anything. There's going to come, there came a point for Egypt, there came a point for Sodom and Gomorrah, there comes a point for Babylon, and there's going to come a point, perhaps in our lifetime, in the nations that we exist in, where God says, enough, no more opportunities, no more chances, no more sending the prophet to give my word, judgment. And at that moment, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be Pharaoh. You can be large and in charge. But at that moment, every knee bows. Every knee, every tongue confesses. You are Lord. Egypt is fixing to see Yahweh. I am the Lord. And my will is sure. And my promise is good. And I will do what I said I will do. Nobody gets away with anything. Part of that cynical heart that's so easy for us to develop is when we see people and it looks like they're getting away with murder. Looks like they're getting away with injustice. Nobody gets away with anything. It's like my daddy used to tell me. 
Sin's going to take you farther than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you want to stay. And it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. And Brent, everything seems fine now, but payday always comes. And then because my dad has a good sense of humor, he'd say, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and you know what? For years, I walked around thinking, my dad's that's, a, that's, that's foolish, old school nonsense. But come on, how many of you sinners been saved by Christ? You know payday comes. Payday always comes. And it's coming for Egypt. And God is good to bring it. He is just to bring it. Oh, isn't the Bible fun? Verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Got to hurry. We got to get to the serpent and the, the staffs. But just so you know, listen, now in the ancient world, people did live a little longer. And there's more oxygen in the air and barometric pressures. Or there are reasons for that that have changed uh, over time. But even 3,500 years ago, when this is 80s old, still old 3,500 years ago. Moses had lived in the palace for 40 years. He had been out with the goats in the wilderness for 40 years. He's got another 40 years he's going to spend leading God's people. He gets tapped into ministry at 80 years old. Here's the big idea and here's the big point. You don't retire from God's work on planet Earth. Praise God we get to finally, if, we're, if, if God allows us to, to make enough to savor uh, by God's grace, we have retirement from our earthly work. But we never retire from God's work. And you may be sitting in here and you may have gray hair this morning. And you think, well, Brent, that's a young man's game and we're going to let the young people do it. Listen, God is never finished with us. As long as there is breath in our bodies, there is a plow that we should put our hands to. God is good to use us in our youth. God is good to use us in the middle of life. God is good. You know, we live in a world where old people can be largely discarded, seen as worthless and just taking up space and resources, but God doesn't see us like that at any point in our life. We always have value to him, and he uses the young and the old alike. doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter how old you are. You know what's funny? Oh, when I was a young man in ministry, I've been in, in full-time ministry 25 years, 15 of those years just here at this church. When I was younger, I always wished I was older. Because <laughs> I felt like, man, when I'm a little older and when I have kids and when, you know, I raise kids, people will listen to what I say with a little more respect, they'll listen to me a little more as I proclaim the gospel. I always felt like, right, that's why Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth because when you're young, you just feel like you don't really know anything anyway and you're trying to do your best, but nobody's paying attention. <laughs> and then I got older. And now I'm 47 and I already, I know I'm still young, but I'm already feeling like, man, I, I wish I was younger. I wish I had a little more zeal because now people are just looking at me like I'm old footy-duddy and he doesn't know what he's talking about anymore. The world's changed. and oh, We never win. 
That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It destroys all that dumb stuff that we get in our heads. God uses the, he used me when I was young. He's using me now. He's going to use me when I'm, you can see my, I got thin skin. I've always got, he'll use me when I'm old, praise God. He's still using my dad. Why won't he use me? Same for you. He uses us no matter where we come from, no matter what age we are. Faith, believe it. Don't just hear it, believe it. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, minute and a half, fast, fast version, ready? When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, God knows Pharaoh's going to want proof. He's going to want a sign. The wicked always need a sign. That's why Jesus tells that wicked and perverse generation of Pharisees, this is the only sign you're going to get. Jonah in the belly of the fish three days. I'm going to be put in the earth three days. But then Jesus conquers sin, death, hell, and the grave. The resurrection is the power of the gospel. It is the final sign and all we need to follow, keeping our eyes on Christ Jesus. He lived the perfect life we have not. He died in our place for our sin. He rose conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. But Pharaoh's going to want a sign. So here's what I want you to do. Take your staff, Aaron, cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. God says, Aaron, he's going to want a sign. Throw down your staff. It's going to become a serpent. So Pharaoh... What is Pharaoh thinking in his, in his head? Every generation, every civilization has their David Blaines, has their Chris Angels, has their Carbonara effects. Right? My mind is so confused, so confused. No, no fans. Every generation. Moses comes from the Chaldeans. By the time we get to the Babylonian period, it's the Chaldeans who are the, the, the magicians and the, the sleight of hand tricksters who can amaze a crowd with, with their tricks. There are even ancient documents talking about how you can take a snake and you can pinch its neck in the right way and it, and it goes into a, a, catas, a cataclysmic uh, state of stiffness. Right? There's all kinds of ways we trick people. It looks like David Blaine's walking on water, but he's walking on plexiglass under the water. There's ways to trick. Moses, or Pharaoh, is thinking this stuff that Moses and Aaron are doing. It's just tricks. And if my guys can reproduce the trick, I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to trust them. It's just, it's just it's a sleight of hand. The wise men of Egypt are able to reproduce this trick. The first plague comes. They're able to reproduce turning water into blood. We've all been in Sunday school and seen You don't see the powder in the bottom of the glass, but you pour it in clear water and it's red. Magicians were able to reproduce the first plague. They were able to reproduce the second plague. By the third plague of Moses, they come into Pharaoh and they're like, we have no idea how they're pulling this one off. They even say, this is the finger of God. By the seventh plague, 
The wise men can't even stand in the presence of Moses and Aaron as they're covered in boils and sickly of body. After that plague, the, the, all the counselors of Pharaoh, all of Egypt is crying out to Pharaoh saying, relent, listen to Moses, listen to Aaron. This is not magic tricks. This is not games. Their God is more powerful than ours. Their God is more powerful than you, Pharaoh. Relent. Repent. This is foreshadowed here. Even though the magicians are able to, to reproduce a staff becoming a serpent, it's Aaron's staff who eats all three of theirs, showing that God is the ultimate power over all human ingenuity and craftiness. Verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord says. What comes out of God's mouth is always true. What comes out of the mouth of man is always the lie. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. Lord, as you built faith in Moses, as you made him the person he needed to be, to lead your people out of Egypt. Lord God, we pray for that work in us. Teach us in this world that steals joy from us, that, that causes a cynical spirit, that causes our, our minds and hearts to be plagued in darkness. Lord God, teach us to keep our gaze upon you to follow you, even when we don't feel like, even, we, even when we don't think it's going to make a difference. Lord God, and as you did, Moses, prove to us in our obedience that your way was always better than ours. It is in Jesus' name we ask for this grace and this blessing. In Christ's name, amen.